a drinking one, by the way? <laughs> okay. I have a glass left from last night's bottle. I have the bottle that's new and open. And in case of emergency, I have gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> you are ready to roll. I'm always ready to roll. Um, <laughs> All right. All right. Well. So well, let's just let, let yeah let's just start then. After several days getting intimately familiar with the fictional characters that claim to be composers, I can hands down say <laughs> that the closest approxim- approximation to an accurate description of the composing lifestyle that I have found in the movies, Sebastian. Really? <laughs> he spends the whole movie running around after the, you know, the needs of his boss instead of actually doing creative work. <laughs> it's the perfect 21st century, 20th century, 20, late 20th, early 21st century composer description. Uh, Fight okay. me. Fight me on this, Rob. <laughs> I will. All right. Well, let's, let's, first of all, welcome to Overdrinks. Um <laughs> Let's uh, let's kind of <laughs> let's kind of set up what we're uh, what we're going to talk about over the next two podcasts. Mm. Um, we've got uh, a two parter here already. I I think it's it's really going to take two to get through all of them, but we're going to talk about four films, <laughs> and I'm going to guess it's probably going to be three plus one because I have a lot to say about one of them. <laughs> I have a lot to say. About one particular weakness of all of them. But go for okay. it. You, you right. keep introducing us here. Okay. Uh, so these, we're going to talk about four films. And they all feature, um, if not the main character, at least a very significant character um, in all of them. A fictional composer. Not we're not going to talk about Amadeus or or you know Immortal Beloved or or any of the ones that you know no are historical fiction, quote unquote yeah. historical. You know, oh, there's so, a, no, there's a genre for that. It's historical fiction where they make up yeah. what they think could have happened, but it's a bit of a stretch. A bit of a stretch. <laughs> a wee bit of a stretch. <laughs> so the four films that we are going to discuss and. Honestly, like, you know, if if you if you the listener have any more suggestions for us, please, you we know, will open that can of worms too. <laughs> leave a comment, you know, send us an email or something because there are just not that many films out there about fictional composers. Um, but the four films uh, are the you know it, you love it, you probably hate it at this point, Mister Holland's Opus. <laughs> At least I do. Um, <laughs> uh, Mr. Mr. Holland's Opus, Cloud Atlas, which, you know, that's that's a movie that has about 17 different uh, plot lines. And it's one of them. Six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, what, and one of them is a composer. Uh, then the next one is Youth, which came <laughs> out in, I think, 2015. 15-ish, something like that. And then the last one is just called Untitled from 2009. So, which let let's <laughs> let's just talk about 
one of them first. Okay. Unless you just want to get into broad generalities right off the bat. I think I think starting with one is a great idea. Which one do you All want right. to start with? <laughs> well, because it's it's not the entire plot of the movie, could we start with Cloud Atlas? And that's the one you thought was perhaps the best depiction of a composer. Well, other than Sebastian um, in Little Mermaid. Wait. Oh. Sebastian from Little Mermaid, dude. <laughs> His name's not Sebastian in the movie. <laughs> I've only seen it once. I thought that was... Oh, no. His name is Robert Frobisher. That's right. Sebastian. (laughs) All right. I hope everybody else got this. (laughs) I told this joke and it didn't land at the beginning of the podcast. And I'm like, oh, Rob really didn't think that's okay. He's not thinking that's funny. All right. I'm sorry. I really didn't get it. (laughs) You could have said Little Mermaid. I thought Sebastian was ubiquitous enough to not need the redhead attached to him. <laughs> the redhead who makes just really poor life d- decisions, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah. Let me let me give it all up, you know, give every, <laughs> everything that's important to me away for a guy and completely throw you know throw my family into complete disarray get my father turned into this little worm thing throw (laughs) the entire ocean into chaos just because oh he's cute he was cute (laughs) yeah all right now we're on the same page now we're on the same now my description of sebastian (laughs) running around doing work for his boss um instead of his creative work this is all starting to ring Ring bells, yeah. Oh, yeah. very much so. Yeah, okay. okay, all right. No, 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 no. So I get it now. Oh, magic. It's not funny if I have to explain it, right? <laughs> I'm okay. sure it was funny to everyone else. Maybe. I hope this part is. <laughs> Anyways, all right, Cloud Atlas. I love the movie. I still think the portrayal of the composers is way too comedic. Like, it's just over the top. They're... <laughs> I love them both, but they're just so terrible. I mean, yeah. I think that's the theme of this this podcast, is that composers must be terrible people or done something terrible to all the men in Hollywood who make movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, okay, so if, if you haven't seen this movie, it's actually on Netflix right now. It is. So just go watch it. It's really long. Um, <laughs> Rob did not enjoy this. <laughs> no, it was I. I, I kind of remembered. I thought I think I saw it on a plane once before, and probably fell asleep multiple times. Um, <laughs> That's not working for this movie. Yeah, <laughs> you really have to stick with it all the way through. But okay, as so you the, said, there's six different plot lines, so and what. The tidiest, sorry, let me, the tidiest no, no, way of no, thinking about this is that the book that it's based on is an arced form. So you, he, you read the first half of the first story, the earliest in history, first and last. And you read the second half of it last. And then you move in so that the second earliest, or the second in time, is the next thing you read and the second to last. So it's a palindrome, mm-hmm. palindromic story. Yeah. Yeah. But for the movie, in order to achieve understanding of 
of all of it and to not screw up the climactic arc of each of the stories. They really interweave it in a way that is, I think, pretty musical. I think they did a better job composing the storyline than they did with the composer's story. (laughs) And the storyline for the composer is not just one, but it's two of them, an old man and a young man, um, who is his amanuensis or or his scribe. (laughs) You scribe. You scribe. (laughs) I I actually kind of agree with you about like the the rhythm and the pacing of the film because it definitely has uh well it's I think it's like three hours isn't it oh it's gotta be to tell all yeah. the stories well yeah uh, it definitely over two yeah um anyway you know it has those it it has several like swells mm-hmm. of of climactic activity and. You know, and then several several troughs as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to have that. Otherwise, the you know, if everything's special, nothing is. Oh, um, more Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Pixar, actually. But. It is. Well, it was Disney Pixar, right? Well, that's from The Incredibles. I know. I mean, a lot of different movies have used that, but. <laughs> That guy had anyway. the, the ego to pull off a Hollywood composer, too. Like, Syndrome totally could have been. <laughs> and I don't totally. mean a Hollywood composer for those of us in Hollywood. I mean a Hollywood's description of a composer. I mean, they all need egos the size of, whew. We'll leave it there. <laughs> well, I actually, I mean, I thought this, this uh, the younger composer, the Robert Frobisher mm-hmm. uh, composer, the very first scene, uh, I mean, not the very first scene. The very first scene is him getting chased out of a hotel room from, you know, because the guy that he's sleeping with is under suspicion or something like that. So he leaves and he goes to this old Actually, composer's... it's Frobisher. What? It's it's the composer. He He gets the hotel room, but like in his father's name or something, and then just refuses to pay. And his father's had enough of his crap. And so he's not going to pay either. And so they literally chase him out. But he's also in a homosexual relationship when it was not an accepted thing. And so, yeah, he's he's fleeing uh, for multiple reasons. But I I guess I didn't really pay attention to those details. He's fleeing for multiple reasons. And this is, I, I kind of gather this is set in like the 30s, 40s, somewhere oh, in there. It's got to be. Maybe 10s, 20s. Mm, Definitely it, early, early, 20, early 20th century. There's a lot of implications of what was going on in Germany with Jewish people and the danger of being Jewish in Germany. So it's got to be late 20s, 30s. Yeah. Can't even be 40s because that w- they would have been at war at that point. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. So 20, 20s or 30s. And um, I thought it was interesting, you know, that the very first scene with the older composer, who's, who he's going to work for, you know, the older composer comes in with this, you know, genius syndrome um, kind, kind of thing going for him. Of, oh, I've heard, I've heard this melody and sings it horribly <laughs> to to yeah. Frobisher to to take down. Okay, play that back for me. And you know, honestly, like if you asked anyone to write that melody down, I, I mean, I thought Frobisher did a pretty good job with it. Um, 
I love that he had to ask for, okay, what time signature are you time in? Signature. And he's like, obviously, it's 3-4 changing to 4-4, four, four, back to 3-4 for this many quavers. And I'm just like, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that. <laughs> nope, not, not at all. But the very first thing he does with it, I mean, he f- first plays it and then harmonizes it in this totally like atonal. I actually thought the harmonization was great. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then of course the older composer is just like, man, that's not. I, I I said a melody, not a malady. That was a good line. <laughs> it was. It definitely was. Oh my goodness! Did you get any like? Do you have any teachers who that reminded you of? Like old school, like you should be able to hear mm. every pitch in a door slam type of. <laughs> <laughs> um, not really. Most most of my teachers were like were very practical, you know. In that, yeah, you should you know you should use the piano. I mean, uh, every single one of them stressed the importance of like aural skills, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful for that. But uh, not not no one no one that eccentric. You know, obviously everything's going to be a caricature. Everything's going to be uh, exploded out to eleven. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. For for a film, but yeah, it was no. It, I, I just thought he was, you know, the older composer was kind of an asshole, but yeah, we're meant we're meant to think that. Yeah. Like so, what else about? Uh, did did any other part of this character kind of ring true to you to your experience as a composer? You know, in that. I mean, I can I can tell you for me that that first scene. I mean, I love what he. I love the first initial reaction to kind of like, oh, let's let's do what's happening right now with this and like harmonize it with, you know, sevenths and ninths and tritones and stuff. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I I don't know. I do you know anyone that can just freaking do that right up, like harmonize after he- on demand? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. Not with. Not with language like that yeah not yet um i think i think the the more common harmonies sure sure right right yeah yeah. you know you choose the best predominant for that part of the melody if you can if you can yeah but to just (laughs) on command harmonize in a way Ah, no 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 i don't think so i can i can i think I, i guess i can think of maybe one person who perhaps might have that kind of skill um but he comes from a jazz back i'm just gonna say it it's ben krause ben if you're listening hi i i think you might be able to do it probably not though (laughs) Um, we're gonna get a phone call at some point it's like hey listen to this (laughs) now listen to this Sorry. Oh, I don't know. I, what it, what rang true to me is that this this kid is like on the cutting edge of harmony. I looked it up while we were talking here. It was 1931 was the okay. was the time period for this particular storyline. And and you know, second Viennese schools not that widely circulated at that point. Yeah. So he yeah. had to be in the know, which I think, you know, college students, grad students they have to be. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think actually a lot of, well, 
I could I can only speak to for myself. Um, I didn't really figure out like what was going on right now until maybe the beginning of this podcast. And we should we should, like seriously that that was one of my motivations for doing this was to like kind of figure out what's happening right now because I like if I'm not forcing myself to listen to music for something yeah. I'm probably just not going to do it. Mm, you know? Fair. Like li- life gets in the way. Yeah. I don't I don't sit down and like, "Oh, I'm going to listen to 10 new pieces," you know, just yeah. for the hell of it. Um so oh, and we should also mention that one of the reasons why Jamie and I are oh, yeah. are are doing these uh this you know double header of podcasts is that we are getting to closely rapidly approaching episode 100 which is just insane. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and we were on episode number 1. I interviewed Jamie the very very first episode. So we thought we'd get back together and talk about something fun for these last couple before we get to 100. Yeah. I think it's cute. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um what were we talking about? Oh, the the current like keeping up with with oh, yeah. things that are I don't know. I think it depends on who your teachers are and how they they push you, but I yeah. felt like in grad school I was more compelled to be researching what was going on in New York City and what was going on in Chicago mm-hmm. and to some extent LA, although I think some of my teachers were like, eh, LA. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot going on in LA. It's hard to keep <laughs> yeah. pinpoint what LA is. And um and and I met someone not soon after I graduated who just who didn't even know what the spectral school was. Yeah. And this person had been playing in an orchestra for a long while. Not one that I was associated or affiliated with at all. I just, they were a parent of a friend of a friend. But they'd been playing in an orchestra their entire life. And they were like, what on earth is spectralism? And I was like, it was about 40 years ago is what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and It is not, it, it isn't, it was. It was. And, and I feel really connected to the rest of the music scene of, I feel this far ahead of I don't know. I got a little judgy there, and I was like, "Oh well, I'm current. I'm in the know. I'm a grad student," and, and I don't know whether I just woke the heck up, and that was never true at all, or or I just don't have time to stay as closely on top of things. But I felt like, as a student, as a younger composer, I was far more inclined to know who was teaching what and where I was also considering Mm -hmm. doctoral programs. So. Well, yeah. And I guess, I guess for me, it was always like, you know, in the theory classes you took and the history classes you took everything, the mid 20th century, you know, up until about the Mm seventies, that's what was really stressed. So that's what I, that was my kind of frame of reference. And I think it probably showed in my music from those, you know, those early times, like I, I started working on a string quartet in my master's degree and I brought it in and Dan Asia was like, you say you've been listening to Bartok, have you? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yes. Yes. (laughs) Oops. Luckily that, that went in the trash, but, um, I don't know. Maybe it is just grad school years that it, then it, that it was, I was pushing for the most current because yeah, you're right. As an undergrad, definitely not. Like that was music history, but I also didn't rely only on music history classes for the listening list. I had, I had, uh, 
you know, Doc telling me to listen to, I don't remember how many new pieces we were supposed to listen to a week anymore, but right. you know, that's, that's part of you know what I do to my students now too. And they find stuff I've never heard of. So, well, well, right. And, and I think because like, especially in my master's degree and in the doctorate, we didn't have that. We didn't have anything like that. Um, it was just like, you know, kind of a choose your own adventure thing. Like, yeah, yeah, go listen to music. We'll see what you come (laughs) back with, but there was no requirement. But with, in the master's degree, um, it, there was a listening list. It just wasn't really all that current, you Mm, know? Yeah. Like the eighties was the newest thing on it. Okay. And it was all, and, and the composers that is like, they were in their thirties when they wrote those pieces, but now they're. 50 and 60 years old right so like i think that's probably one of the reasons in in with my students that you know for their for the 15 pieces they're gonna listen to and write about each semester more than half of them have been written in the last decade and consequently more than half of them have also been written by you know people that are under 40 years old Mm -hmm. yeah so they actually do get a sense of what is going on right now and not just like Oh, this is what happened 70 years ago. Right, right. Yeah, I do have some students. I I do give out a listening list, and some people don't. Um, and in fact, the reason I was the, probably more current as an, a grad student than an undergrad is because Andrea Rankemeyer was one of my teachers yeah. my first year, and she had an awesome listening list, which I used to build the current one that my students just start with. Mm-hmm. But I essentially tell them, you know, if you have no ideas, then look at this and you can start in, you know, a hundred years ago, but you have to listen to stuff that's on the last 30 to 40 years of this list. And if you start YouTube surfing and you find something magical, bring that in. I'd yeah. love to talk about that. I actually didn't know Ratavara, the other, fin- the other big name Finnish composer. Yeah. I had not heard of him until like three years ago. I don't know how I just sailed right around him in my entire yeah. education. But one of my students was like, I found this cool thing on YouTube. I was like, holy cow, I should know the, you. <laughs> the very, uh, the very first time I had ever heard and heard his name was actually through the podcast. Mm. Um, can't remember the episode, yeah. but it was uh, Ling Ling Huang, who mm. was a violinist. I knew at rice and uh, she's just a very creative person. And I think that was like the last interview I did before I moved from China. Oh. This must have been like episode 49, 48, something like that. Mm. But yeah, she she had played this Ratavara violin uh piece and that was the first time ever, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's just he's he's got really excellent skills, but he's not that modern sounding, so I can see why he would have been li- left off a lot of our listening lists. He's like lives deeply in mysticism and and yeah. you know, impressionist type sounds, so I can see where that weakness would occur, but he's also got some really cool stuff. So Yeah. Anyways, so I think that part of the storyline rings true to me. The idea that this young person would be so current on second Viennese school and and more atypical harmonizations of this line that could be interpreted either as tonal or atonal. Yeah. And and that was what I liked is they actually dug into that a little bit. The ego that I, the my my historically hated line. He's got the the statue of the dragon and the guy. I can't remember the story it is, but it's it's 
It's a man fighting a dragon, and the statue is sitting on his piano, and the old composer, Vivian Ayers is his, his character's name, says that he leaves it there to remind him that, some, that that's what composing is like. Some days you're the man, and some days you're the dragon, and you're, you know, you can't tell who's winning. <laughs> <It's> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. so rings to that old style of, like, having really serious problems to solve, and I'm like, it's not cancer. It's really not. <laughs> it's we have some issues in our industry. We're going to talk about some of them over the course of this, you know, horrible character characterization of composers podcast here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, if I put a note in my piece that's not fitting the harmonic language, it's not going to cause somebody else to not cure cancer, and that's mm-hmm. what I constantly have to remind people who take this too seriously yeah i mean i just in in this one in particular my biggest issue with the like portrayal of composers both young and old Mm -hmm. is the whole kind of the the genius persona (laughs) yeah you know Um. that like Obviously, the older composer can just hear these things, pull them out of the air, and then, you know, dictate them. And the other one is like, oh, well, I, you know, all this stuff is just coming to me in a dream or (laughs) or something like that. And it's like, dude, (sighs) no. You know, I mean, at least not in my experience, but. You know what Britain said? That's silly. Nighttime is for sleeping. <laughs> That's the most sensical thing I've ever heard from a composer. <laughs> I'm surprised if, if it hasn't been said on an overdrinks before because it's one of Andrew's favorite quotes, and he's nighttime like, is for sleeping. That's the, this this age old idea of composers waking up in the middle of the night and feverishly writing an idea down is silly. Nighttime is for sleeping. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, Britain, it is. It for is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean. I, I guess, like, I don't want to give any, you know, no spoilers or anything, but uh, it, I was not at all surprised how this storyline ended, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, now, you, it, it is told in such a nonlinear way that you already kind of know what's going to happen before it happens, um, but, like, given the fact that this is that time period... And everything is so dramatic. Oh yeah, um, the the story ends, and you can probably guess, but you can. We'll leave it for you to watch since it is just wild, widely available on Netflix. But. Yeah, but uh, let's let's actually just listen to that first scene uh, where he's where he's uh, you know kind of meeting with the composer for the first time and trying to jot down this melody and harmonizes it in in his language and then in the other one's language and and uh, let's just listen to that right now St. George and the Dragon reminds me that composing is a crusade sometimes you slay the dragon sometimes the dragon slays you alright then a Frobisher is it? I trust Micarus taught you enough to be useful. I've had this little melody for viola rattling about my head for months. Let's see if you can get it down. 
Da-da-da-da. Subtle grace note before the third. Da-da-da-da-da. Soft and simple. Got it? Now it gets interesting. Da, 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 da. Good. Play that back. We'd love to, sir. Um, what key are we in? What key? G minor, of course. And the time signature? For Christ's sake, did you hear it or not? I just, just need a little more time. You need? My dear boy, who is working for whom here? I apologise, sir. Are you an amanuensis or an apologist? Now, pay attention. 3-4, change to 4-4 four, four on the fourth bar and back to 3-4 on bar five, if you can count that high. Crotchet G, pause for a quaver. Repeat G quaver, then E flat on the downbeat. Talilia, da, 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 and so on. All right, let me hear it. Me. You must have misheard me. I said I had a melody, not a malady. Vivian? Jocasta, deliver me. What's going on in here? An exercise in futility. Should I be introduced? There's really no point. The boy's as useful as the clap. Fortunately, it'll be much easier to get rid of. Would you be a dear and get Henry to show the boy out? Yes, of course, darling. <sighs> Okay, so uh, we didn't even talk about what we're drinking. This is this is such a half-assed over drinks. <laughs> it's not. I had to tell the Sebastian joke at the beginning. <laughs> that I didn't get at all. It's <laughs> all right. Okay. Well. Uh, well, I'll. We 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 heard that you have wine, but yeah. so all much right. wine. So I'm <laughs> I'm starting with a glass of. Starting. That almost looks finished. <laughs> I have a bottle next to me. Rob. <laughs> I'm starting our night with the last glass of uh, 19 Crimes Shiraz that I opened two nights ago and accidentally let breathe for a day and a half. So it needs to be finished real quick. <laughs> that's That's been a favorite of yours, right? Yeah, 19 Crimes is the best. It's the house wine in this place. Um and then somebody bought me the Apothic Red Blend, California Red Blend, because mm-hmm. um, I had a really crappy week a couple of weeks ago, so they brought a bottle of wine to rehearsal for me, but I can't drink red wine while playing bassoon, so <laughs> it's podcast wine now instead. <laughs> podcast wine. Podcast wine, and just in case of emergency, 
I have the gummy bears. Well, I uh, for the for the first one, um, because I kind of assume we're just gonna, uh, you know, run through all of these tonight and then break up break <laughs> up the episodes. So, uh, this the second episode that you're gonna hear might be more fun than this one. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> or we could do this non-linearly, like in uh, Cloud Atlas, and just we could totally confuse the crap out of all you. And, uh, you know, someday after six listenings, you'd figure out what we were talking about and when. What are you drinking? Did you finish your sentence? I didn't. Okay. Um, uh, for the first one, I'm, I'm just, you know, as Andrew said the last time, we've been doing a lot of overdrinks yep. lately, so I haven't really had anything else in the house. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, I mean, he, whatever. Um, it's, it's four roses, small batch bourbon. That's, that, that's what I'm starting with okay. because liquor before beer in the clear. And then, uh, yeah. on the, on the next one, we'll get into something a little bit more fun. That breathe. I just poured the first glass of the apothic red blend. We'll see. So, so, uh, I think we should talk about youth next. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> because... <laughs> Now, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> I will. Uh, okay, so this this was a movie uh, with Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, Rachel Weisz, and another guy. Oh, Paul Paul Dano. Oh, and and uh, what's her name? Came in just for a really short period of time. What's her? Oh, name? the the pop singer. No, no, oh. no, no. Um, the older woman. She's brilliant. Oh, uh, yes, Jane um, Fonda. Uh, Jane Fonda. Jane right. Fonda. Yeah, she had a cameo. It was it was an epic cameo. Holy cow! It was. I I had no idea this movie existed until you sent it to me. Yeah. What? Where did it come from? And also, I shouldn't have watched that and the other movie, Untitled, in the same day because no, (laughs) they're very different. I I know, but I ended up in a really dark place (laughs) because I watched Untitled first and then dove into you. (laughs) 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 I had a really rough afternoon rob <laughs> okay well i'm sure we'll get to that I'm but sure we will. anyway <clears throat> michael kane plays a composer you know kind of at the end of his life he uh is not composing anymore he's this you know also hollywood uh just assumes if you are a composer you are also a conductor yep uh so this is one of those characters and you summer composer- in switzerland well <laughs> yeah that, that would be nice um <laughs> So he's at he's at this kind of spa in Switzerland. I mean, the the film is gorgeous. It is. It is. Like just the the cinematography, the setting, it's it's very beautiful. And I think the way that it is shot, uh, you know, not just the things we are seeing, but how it is shot is yeah. also really, really very nice. Um but this is more a story about a person who happens to be a composer. Oh, absolutely. And and the support system that props him right up. Yes. 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 <laughs> Rob's getting a hint of where we're going with this. Yeah. yeah my yeah. my overarching problems with the composer genius trope in Hollywood. <laughs> we'll get into it, Jamie. What what did you what are your thoughts about this one? Mm. Well, this 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 one really hit home for me. The problem with all of them. <laughs> Composers are men. Yep. Emotional issues are prevalent. Yep. 
There's unhealthy coping me- mechanisms to deal with those. Mm-hmm. And there's a support system consisting of mostly women mm-hmm. who are emotionally abused mm-hmm. in one way or many and uh, make themselves smaller, much smaller, to deal with these men and their egos. Because in order to create great art, you can't do the laundry. Yeah. There's nothing so mundane that can be juxtaposed with the ability to create greatness. And all mm-hmm. of them did. All of them must have. But it's undervalued because, you know, his simple songs, which were about his love for his wife, who also enabled and supported and propped to her own, just driven into, un, you know, into illness. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, he's, he's you know these songs that were uh, that were for her and about his love for her. He's now ashamed. And she was, of. and she was a singer. And she was a singer, so it's for voice, the, solo, violin, yeah. and orchestra. And he won't allow them to be performed because she can't sing them anymore. And instead of being a celebration of of the love that they once had, he can't listen to them at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the I, I think I when we when we initially talked about doing this this idea for these uh, podcasts, uh, I said to Kate as we were searching. I mean, first of all, even if you include all of the historical mm-hmm. representations of composer, there's not a single movie about a woman who is a composer. There's not a, a single one. There's a documentary about Nadia Boulanger in it. That's all I can find. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And um, I was actually kind of searching around because I, I wanted to, like, find more. And just before we got on, I was, like, doing – it's really hard to search for this, by the way. Oh, yeah. Because all you end up getting is, like, oh, well, here are the, here are the top movies about classical composers. And they're all, like, you know, biopics. And – Oh, here, here are the film composers and like something like that. So uh, this got me kind of thinking, are there any working on, you know, studio productions that, you know, that caliber of film? Are there any film composers who are also women? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yes, because uh, I'm forgetting the movie, but there is there is actually a small organization that's starting to fight for better equality in Hollywood for you know supporting female composers mm-hmm. who are doing who are currently doing film scores. But yeah, there there are a few. I think man was Wonder Woman scored by a woman. I want to say that that's one Could of them. Be. Um, and I can't remember a couple of the others that are that are, you know, blockbusters. But you know, Wonder Woman, even if it wasn't, hi man, she's put so many amazing women on that team to build that movie and create an image of strong women that wasn't over sexualized. I was so pissed when that next movie came out, and like all of all of the um, Amazons were yeah. suddenly, you know had six packs again and were barely dressed and, you know, but Batman was there. So everything's going to be okay. <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> <laughs> I 
fuck you, dude with a penis who directed, and I haven't bothered to learn your name because that, <laughs> that is not um, what strength looks like. The music on Wonder Woman was by Rupert Gregson Williams. Never mind. So, Damn. Okay. There are yeah. there are women composers in Hollywood and they're on a couple of films that, that are doing well, but there's a I mean, obviously it's disproportionate. As an understatement. Vastly. Yeah. Vastly I mean, I think where there's been some strides lately where we're celebrating a little bit um Either because it's the centennial of women's suffrage and a lot of orchestras are doing something with that because it's cute or because there's they actually heard us last year when we were like, hey, your seasons are crap for equality. Um, yeah. You know, I we'll don't know how, what we'll the see reason, how 2020 goes. That's exactly what I've said is I'm I'm not actually hopeful yet that this is the way it's going, because some seasons are actually saying it's the hundredth anniversary of suffrage. Therefore we're doing this. And if that's your justification and not just women composers exist, then that's tokenism. It is. It yeah. is. Anyways. But, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So here's, here are the problems I saw just like surface level with the film. Okay. And it's depiction of a composer. Okay, first of all, uh, throughout the film, there's this kind of like uh, he uh, Michael Caine has this like candy wrapper in his pocket. <gasps> that was never explained, was it? It ne- it was never explained. But he's like he's like uh, kind of uh, crumpling it in a rhythmic way, and. I, you know, I could never tell if like he's trying to speak in Morse code with one of the other guests or if this is his like half-assed, you know, 80-year-old coming to acousmatic, you know, like sound textural based composition. Like, because there's another part in the movie that you, <laughs> that you posted about on Twitter was when he goes like, yeah okay so my one of my big problems is the is the candy wrapper it's like what is this is this just like like i know that i mean actually it's kind of it's kind of accurate because i do this kind of crap all the time but i'm just the kind of fidgety person um but it seemed so significant to okay him. can and i tell then you oh there's this other part before you get to the cows can i tell you what i thought the candy wrapper <laughs> was gonna be Okay. Yeah. I honestly thought that we were it was going to come out towards the end because this movie juxtaposes like this art house imagery and cuts and framing with some extreme mundanity. Yeah. And and so what I thought was going to happen in the end and it ended up to not be this at all. It was a very dramatic reason why he didn't want those the song being read, but I honestly was like did he have a meltdown over people's cough for you know cough drop wrappers at the symphony and he won't conduct anymore because there was like some extreme cough drop problem at one of these performances and he just can't handle it anymore. So, so that's kind of what I thought. Like, you know, if he has a vendetta against Werther's originals. Yes, yes, yes. Or Ricola, which they were in the Alps, yes. so that would have worked. Oh, God, Rob. <laughs> I mean, 
there are some halls where you can just hear a person turning the page from across. Yeah. The, you know, Severance is like that in Cleveland. It's amazing, but but it's also absolutely annoying because I can hear everything, <laughs> and I pay attention to everything, and I'm like. You know, Tarangulila is screaming at me from the stage, and I can hear old man cough drop rapper over there, 45 seats away from me, not managing to get that thing open. So That, that would have been so good. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. <laughs> I mean, even if they even if they would have just put a little a little kiss to it at the end, you know, like he gets on the podium <laughs> and then he hears a cough drop and then he just oh like you know has a smile or something. But that would have been perfect. Man. Oh, see, that was, I waited the whole movie. I totally forgot. I totally forgot to like check back in on that and see if they finished yeah. that thought, but they didn't. Never they explained. Left, they left me hanging. All right. The cows. Yeah. The I, cows. I, I had a pissed off Twitter post about the cows. <sighs> Composer sitting in a field conducting cows. Cows mooing. Cowbells. Cowbells were very um, important for the scene. W- wind through the trees. There was like a, I think there was probably a woodpecker or something, you know. And he's <laughs> he's sitting there in the field, waving his arms about, cueing the cows to start. And it's just like Jesus Christ. Some guy in in a studio with a fader is just like, I lived with a composer in grad school, and fuck my life, this is not what they do. <laughs> Or if you look at it from like the acousmatic lens, this is absolutely what we do. <laughs> with cows? No, not with cows. All right. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a little uh, <laughs> you know, over the top for me. But, yeah. Um and and this is uh, you know, in in the first one, Cloud Atlas, we didn't really like the 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 piece, the Cloud Atlas sextet that mm-hmm. Frobisher is writing the entire time. That kind of serves as I mean, I think it serves as, uh, you know, background music to the film in various spots. So yeah. the entire <clears throat> the entire film is kind of inundated with that sound. But we don't uh, but we don't really have any like good sense of, you know, this is what his music was like. You know, I think as an audience, we're we're kind of forced into making that leap that. Oh, I needed to be paying attention to this thing the whole two hours to to get a sense of, you know, what what this sextet is like. And I mean, we get the just the little glimpses and when he's playing the piano and stuff. But in this one, and all the all the other films we're going to look at, there is that kind of singular concert mm-hmm. experience where we can we can, you know. St- almost step out of the role of being a viewer and, you know, step into the role of being an audience member mm-hmm. and listening to this music. So that's that was something I wanted to talk to you about. Like, what did you actually think of the music they gave to this character? <laughs> <laughs> Your silence says it all. I know, I know, I know. Um, I thought it had some pretty shitty tech setting, setting, setting. Yep. Not sitting, but setting. Um, I kind of thought that the thing with a kid practicing the piece Mm -hmm. over and over again was cute, but absolutely obnoxious. Yep. By about 90 minutes in, I was like, just learn the damn piece. 
Right. Just... It's basically one motive for the violin. Yeah. Yeah, and, he doesn't and even you've get done to it the r- part. <laughs> I know. And 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 as a kid, you've done it wrong about like 80 times now that we have heard as oh, yeah. a movie audience. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think at that point you're just like, okay, well, the kid has learned it wrong. There is probably not much to do to correct it if you've practiced it incorrectly that many times. Do you get to correct it? And I mean, the piece is called Simple Songs, but good dear Lord, did it have to be one melody in four chords? Of course it did. <laughs> it's for, it's for, uh, but Rob, a that's Hollywood what we audience. write. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I re-listened to the ending uh, right before we got on just to <laughs> familiarize myself with it. And I was like, oh, whole notes in the entire orchestra. Mm-hmm. The brass never plays. The percussion just sits there. There's, I, I take that back. There's one French horn. Yep. And a very that has something. critical moment. Yeah. Change of, of course. Huge he, change of mood. He has to cue the French horn. Yeah. Because otherwise they'd be counting hundreds of bars of rest. Yep. Um, Two old men playing bassoon just sitting there the whole time. Yeah. So it's just like, <laughs> come on. I mean, yeah. th- there, there are all these stories about this particular character, you know, hanging out with Stravinsky and, you know, he wanted to be Stravinsky. Motherfucker, if he wanted to be Stravinsky, he failed gloriously. Yeah. yeah. You know, like this is the, some of the bullshittiest music. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. That, well, I, and- you know. I, I really liked the movie up until the very end, you know, I, and I mean, the, the stuff with the like the rapper and the cows, you know, it's like, all right. I mean, I'll I'll go with you on this journey if it's going to pay off at the end. Yeah. And it just didn't. No. You know, and, and you know, again, this is less about the composer and his music and more about the person who happens to be a composer and confronting old age and 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 all the all this stuff and. But very similarly to another one of the other films we're going to talk about, it's like, well, you just made composers sound like utter ass, you know, yep. by by throwing this this just garbage music at the very end. I don't know. Did you ever want to? Okay, after the age of twenty six, did you ever want to be Stravinsky again? No. I think that's a wild inaccuracy that that's in there. Like, A, you don't make it as a composer into your 80s and then give up. Mm-hmm. I don't know any of them that do. They slow down. They might retire from, you know, active commissions, but I don't know any of them that are unwilling to promote, you know, themselves in a way that'll support the rest of their life, people are living to 100 now. Not many composers, but people are living to 100 now. No, I, no, that's wrong, because just recently Babbitt and Carter had a competition to see who was going to win. Who won? Carter. Babbitt won? Carter, Carter won? Apparently Carter used to call Babbitt every year on his birthday and say, I'm still winning, and then Babbitt died first, and Carter was like months older, so he, he went out in the end. But <laughs> point being, <laughs> you know, I, I just... And and maybe it is the fact that I'm still in my 30s. I don't see myself getting to the point where I've built up this catalog of works that could support me in my old age. Because God knows none of us that 
our currently living composers are going to be able to retire. Yeah. Why? Why reject one song? I mean, it's common to have some of the sillier pieces be sort of, you know, eye rollers in your catalog. Obviously, we've talked about Saint-Saëns and the um, Carnival of the Animals. Animals. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Chike with Nutcracker. Yeah. They're not the most profound things that they've ever written, but... But damn, are they popular. They are. They are. I don't know. But yeah, no, after the age of like 20-something. Cool, Stravinsky existed. I love knowing his music. I'm going to sound like Jamie, thanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think they just dropped the Stravinsky thing in there just to add a bit of credibility to this or add a bit of like reality to it, you know? Like this could have been a real person because we're talking about other real composers or yeah, something like maybe. that. But yeah, anyway. But I I still think it's a it's just a gorgeous film. Like for less about don't see it if you wanted to see a composer in a movie. Go see it just because it's beautiful. Yeah. Or go to Switzerland and get the same experience without some of the weird hinky shit that happened in there, plus Rachel Weisz being treated like trash for pretty much 90% of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I do love Rachel Weisz, though. Uh, That, okay, I'm going to say it out loud. Somebody's going to yell at me somewhere. That part was really well beneath her. Yeah, there was not much to do in it for her. Mm -mm. She has done... Way better films. Yep. She was dumped and treated like crap by her father. And that was her job. Mm Mm-hmm. What could her life have been like if she weren't his assistant and daughter? Which is how she described her two jobs. Her two jobs were, I am a daughter and I'm an assistant to my father. And I was like, bullshit. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm also in the middle of reading the book Fed Up. Uh-huh. And it is about how to define emotional labor, which is an invisible, <laughs> a mostly invisible um, area of work-life balance that is mostly taken on by women because of yeah. the way that we're brought up. Like, the further you get into courtship in a relationship, um, the more women are just, like, naturally predisposed to taking this on due to movies and media mm-hmm. and family and expectation and to the point where you know there's there's you know girls in high school who pack their boyfriend's lunch every day from their parents fridge yeah yeah like because they're taking care of them oh god but that manifests in our adulthood as you know we're always the first ones on call on you know on on emergency lists and you know, I'm not saying this is true in my relationship or yours, but men's relationships with their families end up being maintained by their wives organizing everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so much of of Rachel Weiss's character is is like the support network. The reason her father is surviving is because she literally just sets everything up for him in a really like our grandparents' generation of emotional Mm -hmm. support way 
there is no work in it for the man. He could sit on the couch all day and still survive. And that bogs me to no yeah. end. So good book. Fed up. It's a little repetitive. Right. It feels it feels just a wee bit like she's trying to make sure her husband doesn't feel like this whole thing is about him. But in a way, the whole <laughs> book is about him. <laughs> Well, well, <laughs> she spends a very large quantity of time justifying that, uh, that, you know, he's really, he is really great and he does more than my friend's husband. So I'm like, honey, honey, you're, <laughs> you're proving your own goddamn point. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Well, right. what, what should we listen to from this one? Should it be the, the ending simple song or should it be the cows? <laughs> I'm leaning towards the cows because honestly, the, the song cows. isn't all that great. It's really not. <laughs> but you, if you we played to... it, people won't want to go. I mean, you know, whatever. If you're going to see it or not, you know. If I haven't talked them out of it, then I don't think the the song will talk them into it or out of it. But the no. cow, the cows might. So this is why we should listen to the cows. All right. Well, let's let's listen to him. This is Michael Caine. You won't hear his voice. You know, in in. This is basically just going to be sound effects at this point. Um, but he's sitting in a field conducting all the natural elements uh, that, that occur in that field. Here we go. This is from Youth. Okay, well, uh, we got through two of them, yep. and uh, we're we're already in an hour, so uh, let's let's end this off right here, okay. and we will, uh, you know, we'll we'll see you next week for some more fictional composers in films, overdrinks, lexical tones podcast. <laughs>
It's the most professional sign-off I've ever done. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.